Today's Bible readings from Hebrews 9, 26-27. Otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifices of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's David, in case we haven't met, and welcome to you. We're uh, so delighted to see you this morning. Uh, we're actually doing a five-week series on the Reformation uh, to help us to understand and to grasp the centrality of five particular doctrines uh, that sets us apart as Protestants uh, 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 in the context of the Roman Catholic Church of the 16th century. Uh, the refrain goes something like this, we're, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Uh, and this week we'll be looking at the doctrine uh, of Christ alone. And how, in particular, Thomas Cranmer, uh, in some sense the spiritual founder of uh, the Anglican Church as we know today, um, and he's impact on the Reformation many, many years ago. Uh, well, let's uh, get started and let's uh, wrap our heads around what it means for us to be saved in Christ alone. Well, if you're like me and you like cars, uh, coffee and comedy, uh, then you might have come across uh, a show by Jerry Seinfeld called Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Uh, that's basically what the show is all about. Seinfeld uh, picks a vintage car, drives to a comedian's house like Jimmy Fallon or Ricky Gervais, and goes and has coffee with them at a cafe or restaurant. Uh, a couple of years ago, one episode uh, made headlines uh, because the comedian Seinfeld uh, was picking up wasn't Chris Rock or uh, Eddie Murphy, but the President of the United States of America, Barack Obama. So Seinfeld uh, picks a silver-blue 1963 Corvette Stingray for the president to drive. Uh, he says, I thought the coolest car American made for the coolest guy ever to hold this office. Uh, so he drives to the White House, creeps around the bushes outside the Oval Office, looks uh, through the window, notices Obama working away. And so he knocks on the door, on the window, sorry, to get the president's attention and asks, Are you ready? But Obama wasn't. So Seinfeld plops himself on the couch in the Oval Office, uh, bites into an apple, and asks the president, are these washed? Uh, it's a pretty fun episode to watch, a famous comedian joking around with the lead of the free world. Uh, the president even shows Seinfeld his own car, nicknamed the Beast, the presidential limousine that's bullet and bomb-proof. Inside, Obama gestures to a console uh, to Seinfeld, and he says to Seinfeld, I could call a nuclear submarine right here. I bet you don't have that in your car. Uh, the episode then uh, shows Obama uh, drive the Corvette uh, to the gates of the White House. He wants to leave the White House to get, out of ta get into town, and he asks the Secret Service agent, Hey, Daryl, can you open up for us? Uh, but the agent says to the president, I'm sorry, sir. I can't allow that. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because you would have thought that the President of the United States could do whatever he wants. But that's not completely true. Apparently, this, since the Secret Service is charged to protect the President at all times, 
If they don't deem that the president can be kept safe, they can overrule the president. And so Obama and Seinfeld go to the White House kitchen for coffee instead. Now, as you can imagine, a lot of work goes in, uh, went into this episode. Seinfeld would have had uh, clearance checks. The car would have been searched for bombs as it were, uh, uh, or explosive, and the camera crew would have been screened for weapons. The Secret Service did everything possible to make sure that anyone and anything coming anywhere near the White House and the President of the United States won't pose a national security risk. The safety of the President is of paramount importance. There's a protocol that Seinfeld would have had to follow to be allowed anywhere near the President. And there's a protocol that the President also must follow for his own protection. If he wanted to leave the White House, he has to liaise with the Secret Service. They have to protect him at all times. They will determine whether he can go or not. His protection is of paramount importance. For important people, there is always a protocol a way in which we must follow to engage someone that is that important. Now, in a similar way, there's a protocol when it comes to God. It's not a protocol to keep God safe, like the Secret Service keeping the President safe, but it's to keep us safe. God sets in place protocols to keep us safe from God. Now, this protocol was established in the Old Testament. You see, when God saves Israel from slavery in Egypt, he saves them to worship him. And so he brings them out of slavery in Egypt. He takes them across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God is. And then he says, don't come any closer. So so he, he just saved them from land far away in Egypt. And he brings them all the way to himself at Mount Sinai. But then he says, that's enough. Don't come any closer. Uh, he, he then instructs Moses with these words in Exodus chapter 19, verse 12. It will be on the screen. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Now, this is surprising, isn't it? Well, why, well, why does God save Israel then only to have them at arm's length? Well, the reason for it is the holiness of God. You see, God's holy and people are unholy. And so God must keep his distance from them and their distance from him. Otherwise, the holiness of God will consume the sinfulness of man. The holiness of God is so overwhelming and so powerful that it will completely kill anyone in his presence, just as light consumes darkness. And so last night, um, uh, I was walking um, uh, to my car with Evangeline, and it was completely pitch black. We couldn't see the the, the driveway in front of us. But as soon as I switched on the torch on my phone, darkness was consumed. The light filled the driveway. We could see where we were going. And so just as light and darkness don't mix, just as light consumes darkness, so the holiness, holiness of God will consume the sinfulness of humanity. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man cannot coexist, just as light cannot coexist with darkness. And so the question is this, if God has saved his people to worship him, then how can they worship him if they can't approach him? How can sinful 
the sinfulness of man approach a holy God? And so God establishes a protocol, a means in which sinful humanity can, appro- uh, can approach a holy God. He, cho- he chooses one tribe, the tribe of Levi, to serve him as priests, as mediators, as the go-between before man and God, to offer sacrifices in accordance to God's law so that, they will, so that God will forgive their sins and the sins of the people. And within this select group of people from the tribe of Levi, one man is to serve as the high priest. And every year he would enter the most holy place in the temple to offer a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. However, when we read Hebrews chapters 7 to 10, where the Old Testament is compared with Jesus, we're told that there are four limitations with this system, with the priesthood of the Old Testament. Uh, Let me summarize it for you. The first is that the Old Testament priests were sinners themselves. They weren't holy as God is holy. Second, they died. And so they couldn't intercede for the people all the time, forever. Third, the sacrifices they offered were goats uh, goats and bulls. And the blood of animals can't take away the sins of human beings. And fourth, they served in a man-made temple not in heaven where God dwells. And at at that point, the author of Hebrews is making, the the point that the author is making is this. The Old Testament priesthood served a purpose, but it was only a shadow of what was to come. It was good, but it wasn't good enough. It was a shadow of the reality, a foretaste of what was to come. It was pointing to the real thing, and it would serve for a time until the real thing comes. Well, let me illustrate what this is like. Uh, So recently, Ferrari announced that they'll be uh, releasing their first SUV. For years, they've refused to compromise. They would only sell sports cars, and sports cars would be all that they would sell, not SUVs. Lamborghini and, and Porsche, they've given in, but no, Ferrari will never give in. But now they have. And here's a picture of it on the screen. It, it's an amazing car, isn't it? It's, looks beautiful. It has a V12 engine and a top speed of 310 kilometers per hour. It will sprint to 100 kilometers per hour in 3.3 seconds. And with its sleek design and advanced technology, it's an amazing, amazing car, isn't it? And in some ways, the Levitical priesthood is like that photo of a Ferrari. It serves a purpose. It points to the real thing, but it's not the real thing, because it's a photo of the real thing. It's weak and imperfect. And if that's all we have, then we're missing out on something much better, the real thing. I mean, would you prefer to have a photo of a Ferrari on your wall that you can gaze at all day, or would you prefer to have the real thing in your driveway where you can take it for a ride whenever you want? The real thing is much better than the photo. I mean, it, uh, it's like you know having kids. It's nice to have photos of your kids, but it's much better to actually have them in real life. Well, maybe when they're good. It, what's amazing about uh, what Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the real thing. The Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament was representing the real thing, shadowing the real thing, pointing to the real thing, but wasn't the real thing itself. 
Where they were sinners, Jesus was sinless. Where they would die, Jesus would intercede forever. Where they sacrificed goats and bulls over and over again, Jesus sacrifices himself once for all. And where they served in a man-made temple, Jesus serves in heaven where God is. You see, some of the Jews in the first century who had become Christians were tempted to go back to the temple to keep offering sacrifices, even though Christ had already offered himself as the one true sacrifice for sin. And you can understand why, can't you? That you, you see, all throughout their lives, and even right there and then, they would see the temple still there. They would still see their friends and their family go to the temple to offer sacrifices to God. But they've put their faith in Jesus who has offered the one true sacrifice. And they're wondering, well, was Jesus' sacrifice enough? Maybe, maybe he wasn't. And so we'll keep going to the temple anyway to keep offering sacrifices just in case. Just in case Jesus wasn't enough. And now that they've put their faith in Jesus, they feel that, have my, are my sins really atoned for? Has God really forgiven me of all my sins? But the author of Hebrews makes it very clear to them that Jesus alone is enough. Christ alone is enough. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let me... Let us draw near to God <laughs> with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. You see, friends, this is good news, isn't it? As Christians, with the coming of Jesus, with his one-for-all sacrifice for sin, we don't go to the foot of Mount Sinai unable to approach God. We don't stand outside the temple unable to approach God. We're standing at the foot of the cross and we can have every confidence to enter the most holy place, to have a personal relationship with God the Father because the blood of Jesus has been spilt. We can have every confidence to draw near to God, to be absolutely certain that God will embrace us because the blood of Christ has washed away our sins. As 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 tells us, for Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. You see, friends, the Bible is very clear. Faith in Jesus is the only way to God the Father. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you have direct access to God the Father through Jesus. You don't need a human priest. I, I'm not a priest. I'm not a priest. For Jesus is your great high priest. And you don't need another sacrifice. I don't offer a sacrifice on your behalf or anyone's behalf, even my own. For Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice for all our sins on the cross. Now, if that's what the Bible teaches, that wasn't what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching in the 16th century you would have had a completely opposing understanding of the cross of Christ, the place of the priesthood, and what it meant to continue to come before the throne of God. In a Roman Catholic church, you have a priest who offers a sacrifice to God 
week after week in the Roman Mass. So during the celebration of Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, a Roman Catholic priest says this, Pray, my brothers and sisters, that our sacrifice may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. And everyone in the congregation says, May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands, at the hands of the priest, that is. For he's holding up the bread. And they're saying, May the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name, for our good and the good of his church. At this point is the high point of the Mass. The priest calls down the Holy Spirit on the bread and the wine. And the priest says, God our Father, we now ask you to send your Holy Spirit to change these gifts of bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. When he says this, the bell rings, the bread and wine, they believe, changes to become the actual body and blood of Jesus. And so when the bread and wine is lifted up, Jesus himself is being lifted up by the priest, and Jesus is presented as a sacrifice to God again. Because the bread and blood are really Jesus. He's therefore worshipped and adored by the congregation as Christ himself. You see, the, the purpose of the Roman Catholic Mass can't be any clearer. It's for the priest to offer Jesus as a sacrifice to atone for sins again. The Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church quotes the Council of Trent and says this, The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same, that is Jesus. The same now offers through the ministry of priests, who then offered himself on the cross, only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a body, bloody manner, on the altar of the cross, is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. So basically what they're saying, what the Roman Catholic Church is saying is this. Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross in a bloody manner. But now the Roman Catholic priest sacrificed Jesus at Mass in an unbloody manner. Not by repeating Jesus' death, but by renewing it and making the death of Jesus present for them. And that's why the Roman Catholic priests are so revered. They're in some sense the Levitical priests of the Old Testament today. The Roman Catholic Church believes that you still need a priest to stand between you and God. You don't have direct access to God in some sense because you need a priest to intercede for you still. And that's not Jesus. That's a Roman Catholic priest. A Roman Catholic priest to make sacrifices to God on your behalf for your sins week after week. The Catholic Inquiry Centre in Sydney, which seeks to promote Roman Catholicism in Australia, says this about Roman Catholic priests. Some men are chosen by God to share the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It is through their hands, lips and will that Christ acts to become present at Mass. That is, Roman Catholic priests are co-priests with Jesus in some sense, doing the work of Jesus. They stand before God on your behalf, just as Jesus does. And so without a priest, there's no Mass. 
Without a priest, normal bread and wine can't change to become the body and blood of Christ. Without a priest, Jesus can't, uh, can't be offered to God as a sacrifice. And without a priest, there's no forgiveness of sins. And it's in this context that Thomas Cranmer wrote the 42 Articles of Christian Religion in 1552. It was later revised as the 39 Articles of Christian Religion in 1563, which remains the doctrinal statement of the Anglican Church. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Archbishop to King Henry VIII, and this is what he said. The offering of Christ once made is that perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual. And there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. That is, Christ died for sins once for all. And this is his comment about the Roman Catholic Mass. Wherefore, the sacrifices of masses in the which it was commonly said that the priest did offer Christ for the quick and the dead to have remission of pain or guilt were blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. You see, friends, Cranmer made it very clear that it is in Christ alone who died for our sins once and for all on the cross is the one true sacrifice for sins. He is our great high priest and he's all we need. And it is neither to be repeated or re-represented in any way, shape or form. The Roman Catholic doctrine and practice of presenting Jesus as a sacrifice week after week is blasphemous. It undermines who Christ is and what he has done. And it elevates the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church in a place where it should never be. That's why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when I say, and I preside at the Lord's table, and I say to you, we eat this bread and drink this cup. I'm not offering a sacrifice. And do you know what your response is? Do you remember what it is? What am I doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and I say we, we eat this bread and drink this cup to, to sacrifice Jesus to you again? No. To proclaim the death of the Lord. We don't sacrifice Jesus, we're proclaiming the death of the Lord. We're proclaiming the gospel. You see, at the heart and center of Anglican worship and of Protestant worship is the word of God. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is to proclaim the word of God. As an Anglican church, we're indebted to Cranmer for reforming the church in England. Something he couldn't push through during the reign of King Henry VIII. But when his godson, the son of King Henry VIII, the only son, Edward, became king at the age of nine. Cranmer was able to promote major reforms. He wrote and compiled the first edition, two editions of the Book of Common Prayer, a complete liturgy for the English church for which our liturgy is based. He gave refuge to a number of continental reformers like Bucer. He changed the teaching of the church to reflect scripture alone. But Edward reigned for a short five and a half years and at the time during that reformation, it all came to a crashing halt because Edward was succeeded by his Roman Catholic stepsister Mary, who you might know as Bloody Mary, in 1553. She basically went on a crusade to arrest, torture, and kill 
Protestants in all of England, and Cranmer was one of them, though he was Archbishop of Canterbury. Cranmer was sent to trial for treason and heresy, a prison for two years, forced to recant. But at the end, he changed his mind. He was about, as he was about to be engulfed at the stake where Latimer and Ridley had been burned six months prior, he extended the hand that signed the recantations to be burned first. And as he breathed his last, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I see the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Friends, as Christians, we have put our faith in Jesus, not in a Roman Catholic priest. We don't need another priest to offer Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins, for Jesus himself offered himself once and for all. We don't need another priest to stand between us and God, for we have the great high priest in Jesus who intercedes for us. And so the question then is, how do we respond to this amazing and glorious teaching that in Christ alone we have salvation? In Christ alone we have access to God the Father. Well, there are three things I want to encourage us to do. First, we must not offer Jesus as a sacrifice, but our bodies as a sacrifice to him. So in Romans chapter 12, after Paul explains the gospel in detail, he then changes gears. And in 12, he says, Therefore, that is, you now have the gospel. Now you've understood the gospel. Now you understand what Christ has done for you. What do you do? How do you respond? And so he says, Therefore, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of all that God has done for you in, in Christ Jesus, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but, by, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That is, Jesus' sacrifice has taken away your sins. He's brought you into a relationship with God the Father. And so now, live according to it. Live in accordance with the mercy of God. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to live a life that pleases God, that pleases your Heavenly Father, that you might, with your body, love what He loves and hate what He hates. Friends, in response to the good news of Jesus dying for us, we are to live for Him and Him alone. The second thing we're to do is to proclaim this good news. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 tells us, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. You see, we're now a royal priesthood in the sense that we have received from God his mercy and his love and the good news. And so we have the opportunity, we have the privilege, we have the responsibility to now declare this good news to others. That's the role that we have. So that those who do not know him might know him as we know him. 
as God the Father through Jesus, the great high priest. Third, we are to rely on Jesus alone. So, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. And so, friends, if you've ever wondered whether you're good enough for God, if you're ever doubting if God loves you, then remind yourself over and over again that Jesus alone is your mediator. God is on your side. Jesus alone has offered himself as a ransom for all your sins, not just some of your sins, not just the the, the okay sins, all the bad sins, every single sin that you would ever commit, past, present and future. God has paid for those. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all your sins. God will always forgive you if you turn to him. And so, friends, let's offer our bodies as a sacrifice to love what God loves and hate what he hates. Let's proclaim this good news so that everyone might have the hope that we have, that God loves us and that God will always forgive us all our sins through Jesus Christ alone. Amen.